listening to First Church Charlotte. We will, we will get started. One of my goals with this series is to do less uh, kind of uh, kind of a lecture style Bible study. Um, and one of my goals is to talk about current affairs, talk about things that are going on, um, because we cannot get in the habit of isolating or let me use a different verb. We can't compartmentalize our Christianity where there's the work us, the polit- political us, the all, you know, the civil us, the business us, but uh, once a week we're a Christian. So in order to, to really be successful um, in blending and being a holistic believer, um, which sounds like health food, I know, but we're just gonna work with it for now. Um, the, you have to really organize your thinking you have to organize your thinking because if you don't intentionally organize your thinking around biblical principles, what you'll do is you'll find yourself saying what you've heard commentators say, what coworkers have said, what family members who may or may not be biblically based and founded, um, they will say, if we are going to be biblically founded people, we have to organize We have to intentionally organize the manner of our thinking where I don't just look at a situation and then, you know, blah, 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 all over it. I look at a situation, I consider the foundations of my belief, the foundations of scripture, and then I am able to proceed uh, with organizing myself. So today I want to talk in a, in, in, in the, in line of having a goal of current affairs, I want to talk about what's going on in the Ukraine, but I want to talk about it from a biblical and a spiritual perspective that hopefully we all can we all can grow from. So uh, as soon as I can get my uh, my page to change here, uh, huh? Let me let me try this. Um, so now I will share again. And we'll see if that fixes fixes it better. All right, you should see the first page here coming up. Hopefully, you can see that. Um, so, where if we're going to organize ourselves biblically, if we're going to take that seriously, um, where where then uh, should our our understanding come from in terms of why nations go to war? What constitute a just war? Um, why do Christian nations end up on opposite sides of the same issue? Now, why would we think about this? Because we're wanting to be biblically founded people. We're not just spouting whatever our favorite radio talk show host said. We want to be biblically founded. So let's, let's read together James chapter number four at verse number one. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Now, this is, the, this is the subject, this is the question James is going to deal with, and he's going to take a very large issue like wars, and he's going to end up with a lesson that we can walk away from. That matters. It's going to start big, and then he's going to take it in where it's going to end up. He's taking us on a journey like all good Bible teachers. They take you on a journey, and when you get there, you realize you've carried some things with you that you were able to pick up along the way. So where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain? You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Now, we started with a big subject of war. This is kind of a big issue. We started with that. And now we're dealing with the nitty gritty. All good approaches to Bible 
starts like this. I want all of us to get this. I want us all to integrate this in our life. Why? Because we started reading about other people and we ended up looking at ourselves. We started reading about other people. Now, the Bible can always be used as, um, if you choose to, you can use it to cut others. But remember, it's a two-edged sword. And so while we are in some manner, as it were, applying Bible to other people and telling them what they should do right or they should do better, that same Bible is being applied to us. So uh, here James starts with, okay, we have a problem in our society of wars. Where do they come from? In other words, all of you people who are not in the battle, you're not in war. Do, do you understand that the same lusts that drive kingdoms and empires and presidents and generals to battle, those same lusts war in you? This is good Bible teaching. It starts with understanding the world, but it comes back to change me, O oh Lord. Because the only thing you have to control in your life, the only thing I have to control in my life, I mean, full stop, period, is right here. That's what I have control over. Everything outside of this heart right here, I don't have much control over that. I may have influence. I may have some type of a uh, type of control like management, or, but that's, come on, uh, that, that's, that, this is what I can control. So then he says this, you ask, you do not receive, you ask amiss, you want things that aren't good for you. That's what he's saying. Because you want things that primarily are about your pleasure, and then he says this, adulterers and adulteresses. This has both the lust of the flesh in it, but it also has idolatry in it. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. God wants to have relationship with every one of us. And when we choose the world's view of our life, the, the life we lead, our family, when we choose the world's view of who we can be, it is as though God is jealous for our hearts. He wished you cared about time with him, but you know how it is. The flesh uh, turns us in some way. Uh, towards serving self. That's always the problem with the flesh from the Garden of Eden all the way till the final judgment. It's the self that wars within us that makes us allies of Satan. Verse number six. Therefore, he says, or let me back up, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, how did we start? with an issue of why kings, presidents, empires, generals go to war and we end up with a pride problem. Did you see what James just did? He started with why are we warring with one another? Why are we fighting with one another? And here's the thing, we end up with a pride problem. Now, I, I, I wanna say at the front here that I'm not trying to take any political position, so, in an effort to be extremely fair, I will reveal, reveal my priors. That's a way of saying I'm predisposed to view, to have sympathies with the nation of, the, of Ukraine um, and to have and to feel like Russia, led by its president for life, Putin, um, is is um, in the wrong here. So that so you'll know I'm not trying to manipulate or trick anybody. That's my priors. Um, why? are we seeing the horrors of modern war on the European continent? Why? 
why nobody really expected this. Um, even the generals uh, in the Russian army were caught by surprise. Uh, and then when it didn't turn out the way they did, here we have the horror of modern modern war. So uh, the interesting thing for us is that there's actually a lot of churches in the Ukraine and there's a lot of churches in uh, Russia. Uh, my brother uh, has made several trips uh, to preach in Apsok churches uh, in that part of the world. And he actually was had another trip coming up before all of this popped off. Um, there are churches there. There are people that are trying to serve the Lord there. There are men who stayed behind to, to fight and their wives and children who are in Poland and Germany and the like trying to find um, you know, temporary accommodations. Uh, and here we are uh, at war. Now, both uh, Ukraine and Russia claims in varying degrees to have a Christian inheritance and background. Both of them claim in various degrees to have this Christian, primarily through the Orthodox Church, uh, inheritance, and yet they are they are involved in uh, this terrible conflict. When Christian nations talk about a just war, what are we talking about? I want to give you, remember, we're organizing ourselves biblically. Uh, we're not just listening, you know, reading the New York Times columns, which I do, and repeating what we hear. We're trying to organize ourselves biblically. So what are the principles? They're scriptural principles whereby this idea of when a nation could rightfully and appropriately fight and when in other words can a war be just a war is never good but could a war be just and when would a war be unjust wars are always bad never good but sometimes there is a justice element that is involved in it and sometimes there is not so let me give you a handful of principles i put in the notes the notes that that you have here um, the first one is uh, simply all justice is built upon a foundation of humans having intrinsic value because they are God's creation. They have an intrinsic value. Therefore, there is justice involved. Uh, you could not in any way just do what you wanted as a president or a general or an empire leader and have God's approval on you uh, because uh, there is uh, an intrinsic value. However, the flip side of that Humans are also inherently sinful. We have this tension that God says we're valuable, and yet we are wholly given through our very heart and through the, the formative effects of sin, we are given over to a serving self. So we have value because we're God's creation, but we are deeply sinful and we seek our own way. To, to counter this reality of human sin, uh, God instituted or placed his blessing upon a human government. Why? Well, if you want to read the scriptures that I put here in the notes, um, you will you will see right away that it is to maintain order and justice. Human governments have a, a mandate from heaven. That sounds like a Chinese political statement because that's what they call their leaders. But biblically, 
there's a mandate from heaven to do what? To maintain order and to pursue justice. There's not a mandate from heaven to take over your neighbors just because you are in the mood to pursue, you know, some fantasy of Peter the Great. Uh, that is not uh, in a, a biblical justice. Your your role and your job is to pursue justice, to maintain order. As Christians, it is a duty upon us to pursue a more just world. It is a duty upon us to to, to pursue uh, a just world. And again, I placed there uh, scriptures uh, that uh, you can download the notes um, or look them up have, if you have your Bible open there in your lap. Um, we are obligated to pursue a just world. We want to walk humbly and do justice uh, to please God. Um, however, um, justice does not, our pursuit of a just world does not give any Christian group the right to use force or any unethical behavior to advance their faith. Jesus very plainly said that he, uh, his kingdom was not of this world. And if it was, then he would have taught his disciples to fight, but uh, it was not of of this world. And so uh, we see how that would always be uh, wrong. Further, the next biblical principle is the difference between uh, violence through governmental means that's trying to keep order and pursue justice uh, and violence through um, violence through, say, just somebody's temper. Uh, uh, this prohibition in Exodus 20 gives clarity on murder but not capital punishment, scripture on that, uh, nor does it speak against justified warfare or legitimate self-defense. And then final principle that I think should be in our foundations to understand when um, a, a Christian nation would be just in its war. War is never good, but sometimes justice requires it. The last one would be a clear understanding that cruelty, revenge, hatred, any of the lusts of the flesh are biblically wrong, whether or not they have some justice covering. You could be a person, a soldier serving in a war that was required by justice, but act as a war criminal. And you would not be able to claim an, any type of an exemption or exclusion because the war itself had justice to it. So with that foundation, I'm going to show you how Christian scholars um, have ended up with what are the five standards of what would make a war just. Number one, is the government legitimate? The government has to be legitimate. If you'll notice, that automatically takes out um, some of the, na the, the governments that are only in power because they will kill you if you protest. They lose their legitimacy when they stop serving the people and require the people to serve them. Now, remember that because we're going to do what James did. We're going to go all the way back. We're going to start with something big. How do we end up in wars and go all the way back to something internal? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. A just world, a war must be declared by a legitimate uh, government. Um, and you could not in some way justify uh, lying to your public and it be a just war. You couldn't uh, 
justify uh, some type of uh, break of your own rules and laws and then claim justice uh, from a, uh, a tradition of uh, Christian scholarship. Uh, the second point is last resort. Uh, war is never the first answer. It should be only after everything else has been tried. Um, number three, there's a just cause. The intended outcome needs to be morally upright. Um, and there needs to be uh, 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 the pursuit if a Christian nation is going to go to war, there needs to be in that nation the pursuit of justice. It can't just be embarrassment. They they embarrassed us, so we're going to bomb them. That's wrong. There's that you can't. I don't. It doesn't matter if you claim to be a Christian nation or not. You a nation like that will not be blessed. Um, a, a, a nation that, um, for example whether you were embarrassed or some way you were going to try to um, get reelected or something there. No, that, that is all. There has to be a foundation of justice. Uh, number four, uh, the just war seeks prudent goals. Um, the, the ugliest wars in history are ideological wars because there's no end to I, the idea, the ideology. Um, therefore, the result of that is the ugliest wars are always driven by a belief system, not a measurable, prudent thing. So, like, for example, um, take the situation in Ukraine. You could set a prudent goal. We want withdrawal from our land. And you could, you could make a just war claim that you had the right to defend that. But if you set an absurd goal that was more about an ideology or vanity, there would be no end to it and there would be no end of wars. Uh, and so finally, a just war uh, uses moral means. Now, that seems that seems uh, absurd in that you're trying to kill people. <laughs> um, but that is uh, that is uh, really what we have to strive to uh, think about in terms of uh, a just war, um, there should be a proportionality, and that's the key word, proportionality, uh, which is one of the absurdities coming out of the current situation with Ukraine and Russia, because um, Putin is threatened uh, three, twice now. He's, he's mentioned nuclear weapons um, in a manner to intimidate and to scare. But here's a little uh, detail. Um, in the Russian Federation's own documents, they have their own doctrine of war, of when nuclear weapons would be used. And the key understanding, if you read those, I have not read them, but I read a summary of them today, is um, existential threat. So what is happening here is you have a perfect example, in my opinion, and I, I warned you about my prior um, beliefs, okay? These are my priors. You have a perfect example of how vanity seems to be a small thing, but when it's done, it can destroy not just by few, but it can destroy by many. And so the reality of this is that we see, um, I think, an example of this in what has happened in our current affairs, um, what is going on in our, our reality. I believe with Imperfect. I have imperfect knowledge. I have, but um, I, I personally believe that this is a living teaching example in front of all of us of how far vanity can take us.
because uh, uh, vanity always destroys. Vanity is the key to the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, and vanity contends to uh, continues to be the root of sin. I believe uh, in all of our hearts today, um, Lucifer uses vanity. Uh, he appeals to the vanity of uh, Eve. The forbidden fruit is beautiful, it's tasty, it's appealing, but here comes the big one. You will be like God. And that vanity um, tempts her in a way. It in some way knocks on the door of her heart and desires in a way that had never happened before. Um, there is no place anywhere else where all, but you know, she struggled with this and struggled with this. It's always in the context of vanity. Now you can say, well, you're, you're, you're making more of that than you think, but cause you only have one example. Well, no, I actually have more than one example. I have another one. And that is how all sin started with the fall of Lucifer was his fall into sin also in the context of vanity. Why? Yes, dearly beloved, uh, it was. Uh, Lucifer himself fell into his state of being uh, one who glorifies God to being one who organizes divine rebellion. He fell into that state through vanity, through exalting self. I will lift myself up. Um, the most dangerous well, let me, let me give you one more example, and then I'll end with uh, what I think is some of the most dangerous things. And um, so, King Saul is a perfect example of how vanity destroys. He has everything, handsome, gifted, chosen, potential world changer. I mean, you can read the story in 1 Samuel 9. At first, he's humble, but somehow he switches in his mindset from I am one who serves, and he switches to I am one who am served. That's the key right there. That is, that is, in my opinion, that is the key to how vanity destroys. The subtle shift from I am one who serves to I am one who is served. So um, I want to, I want to uh, real quick uh, talk about how the enemy attacks our church, not not necessarily our church, but I should say the church. Uh, and I want you guys to, to to think about this, and then at we'll 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 look at uh, uh, we'll touch the questions briefly, and then um, we'll I'll dismiss you, uh, but. Um, I want to. I want to say this: the most dangerous church problems. Um, when I was, I've been in churches while they were splitting. Um, I've been preaching revivals where someone got the Holy Ghost and it split the church. Um, I, my wife and I, have had our personal safety threatened. Uh, we've had the the pastor in the middle of revival because the church was going through a split. The pastor asked us to leave. He said because he's afraid some of the angry people in the church had come by and shoot guns into our RV. And I was so dumb as a young man and so zealous for God, I I, I refused to do it. I would not do that now. I would be glad to leave if anyone threatened guns at me. <laughs> I have seen it. I have seen churches blow up. 
every, I've known a lot of pastors who've gone through church splits. I have treated each one of them as a personal teaching example. Um, I have driven some of those pastors nuts trying to understand, asking them, what about this? What do you think about that? Um, this is what I have, this is where I have arrived. The single most dangerous thing that can happen in people, whether or not they're religious or not, is when a person of profound vanity meets a person of ignorance, spiritual ignorance, or spiritual immaturity. They're both blind, but they're blind in different ways. This is exactly what happened in the ministry of Jesus with the Pharisees who were the scholars of the Bible and would come to argue. Jesus spoke to his followers, the, the, the Pharisees, not, excuse me, the fishermen. Uh, they weren't scholars. And he told them to ignore. He said, just leave them alone. Ignore them. Now, why were they coming to argue with Jesus? Because they wanted to draw the crowds to themselves and the crowds wanted to follow Jesus. Okay, so they're coming to argue, and Jesus says this, the blind lead the blind, and they both fall in the ditch. But it's two different kinds of blindness. The crowd is not scholars. The crowd are simple. They're people of spiritual immaturity. Show us manna. That'd be a cool trick. And they're people of simplicity. Can you heal my daughter, Lord? They're not scholars. There's one kind of blindness that's vanity. How, who is this Jesus to think he can teach us anything? And there's another kind of blindness, which is a simplicity or an immaturity. But that's where danger comes in, where vanity meets simplicity or immaturity. Every serious church attack I have ever seen where an in, the enemy of the church came in to attack the church has always been a combination of those two things. There's a group of people who think they know better than anybody else in the church. They know better than the pastor. They know better than the leaders. They know better than the directors. They know better than everybody else. And so they set themselves up in the role of, they don't do enough of this. They do too much of that. They should have straightened that out. You have the vein, but the vein's always looking for a crowd. Vanity without a crowd is a desperate soul. They're looking for a crowd. And so what do they do? They talk, 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 together a crowd, debate, debate. What about this? What about this? They're tremendously vain people. And they attract in tremendously immature and tremendously, uh, how shall we say, simple uh, people. And that's what Jesus says. You have the blind leading the blind, and they both fall, fall in the ditch. All of this sources back to the challenge of, of living in a manner where we humble our hearts, where we go to prayer and we humble our hearts and we say, Lord, don't let me choose vanity as a way of being that in some way blinds me to who you really are, what you are really trying to do and who I can be in your purpose. Help me to repent Help me to humble myself. Help me to seek to understand before I lecture and uh, lecture others, I should say. And so we start going all the way back to James, and he talks about this issue of um, where does war come from? Well, that's a big subject. Really, really big. And then he brings it very, very small right into your heart. And he says, it's a, it's a vanity issue. It's you wanting more. It's you dreaming of the glory of the Russian empire. 
It's you imagining, oh, they're encroaching on our borders. No, you have 6,000 nuclear weapons. Nobody can encroach on your border. You have 6,000 nuclear weapons. Nobody can encroach on your borders. That's all a myth. That's all a lie you tell yourself. <laughs> you, see, you see what I'm going? It all started small. I mean, it starts, okay, so it was big, war, but it starts from a small thing. Lust, me, self, God save us from that. Teach us to humble ourselves and teach us to receive the word of the Lord. Um, and so I'm going to, um, real quick, I'm going to, I have uh, three or four questions here. I'm going to move through those very quickly. And uh, if you have any on now that you kind of got the gist of what I'm wanting to share as far as current affairs right now and having a biblical approach to it, if you want to um, add that in uh, to the questions, I'll, we'll see how long we can get before um, we, uh, we clock out here. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, Deanna, God does allow for self-defense. If you go, um, uh, back to a number, let's see, uh, let's see. Well, on the top of page number two, um, legitimate self-defense, Luke 22 and 36, um, God does allow for legitimate uh, self-defense. But I would say in addition to that, the same rules of justice apply to self-defense. Um, let me give you an example. Um, if someone breaks in your house, there's no need to be in a hurry to kill them. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, if they won't, if they won't heed your warnings, yeah, but we shouldn't rush to cause harm. If someone breaks in my house, yeah, I, I, own, a, I own a firearm, and yes, I will uh, protect my loved ones. But my first choice is not going to be to kill them and then, you know, call the local right-wing radio station and brag about how I killed somebody in my house. No, they might be drunk. They might be, they might be in mental health challenges. I think the same principles of, that of, of justice apply to self-defense. But yes, we absolutely have the right to self-defense. And more, uh, we have the right to protect the weak um, within the arena of, of um, I think, uh, appropriate good sense. Um, so, uh, Anthony mentioned if a war can be uh, a just action or even a holy action, I don't, I don't, I, 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 I Anthony, I want to cringe from that word holy. Um, um, there's too much terrible history in Christian uh, of holy wars for us to use that word. It's, it's, it's too dangerous. Um, we talked about over in, um, uh, on page number two also, I believe it was, um, where we can't use violence. Um, uh, there is no, there is no uh, violence uh, that would be allowed um, to justify um any type of war. So I, um, yes, war can be a just action, but I, I, I would, I would not say it could be a holy action. War is terrible. And the way to win the world is not power, it's love. Thus the absurdity of violence done in the name of faith. It's not power that never fails. It's love that never fails. Power can pass away. Armies rise and fall. Sometimes you've got the best weapon. Sometimes you don't. But love never fails. However, that is a Christian um, 
spiritual foundation, thus the word holy for it. Um, so yes, conscientious objectors is very much defended and even in some ways, depending on how you read it and the translations involved, encouraged. Um, so we have biblical foundations for people to be either conscientious objectors or to, uh, to uh, serve their country uh, in a manner that represents the just, uh, uh, appropriate, proportional actions um, of that of that um, that war. It would it would never be a holy war. It would never be a good war. War is terrible, but it might be a just war. Um, for example, the government may execute uh, someone who has a death sentence, but that is a just action. It's not a good action. <laughs> and I know you. I know we're tempted to play word games. Are you saying something just could not be good? Um, I, I kind of am. I kind of am. And I understand that puts me in a, a little bit of a pickle. But um, it that execution may be just, but I don't know that we would call it good and certainly not holy. But yes, some people can conscientious, conscientiously object and we should support them. Um, not, not to elevate them above anyone else, but we should support them. And we should all be reminded that all armies have a lot more tail than teeth. <laughs> There's a lot of things they can do to serve. In fact, I listened to a, um, a, 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 a soldier interviewed in Ukraine who was encouraging foreigners who don't speak the language and do not have combat experience, don't come over here and insist on fighting. There's a lot you can do. Help us feed people, help us organize people, help us work in the hospitals. You don't speak the language. We might, you know, we could be yelling something, you know, get down, get down, but you don't know. So here you are. It's a good, there's a lot of things a, a conscientious objector could do. Um, so I respect that. I do not know. I've never been in a situation where I had to choose. Um, but if I would be completely transparent with you, which may get me in trouble, I probably my, myself would probably not be a conscientious objector um, unless I felt I was in a nation where the war itself was unjust. And then I would I would take that that option. Um, so uh, as far as believers and non-believers who are soldiers, um, uh, in a war. So if you commit, if you kill someone in a war, it would not be biblically the same thing as murder. Although psychologically damaging to you, it would be. Yes, it would be horrifying. Um, it would be something that you would live with the rest of your life, I'm sure. Um, I think that just any uh, reflective, thoughtful person would say that. But in a war, um, uh, it would not be murder because of the lack of personal you have no personal harm against them. It's just two great powers are pushing against each other. So it would not be murder. However, it is possible for someone to be at war and to commit murder. Um, examples of that is uh, uh, soldiers who um, lose their way and kind of go they, they kind of lose their, their sense of moral. And there's all kinds of things that can happen. There's friendly fire. There's uh, uh, killing non-combatants. So a person could commit murder. And we have a whole military judicial system to deal with them uh, if that were to happen. But uh, a good soldier in good conscience would not be uh, considered a murder. Um, and my thoughts... Uh, uh, biblically. So um, the next question we have here is um, 
Okay, so Carlos was responding to Paul. Let's see. Uh, God allowed killing in the past, but doesn't anymore. Um, it's not quite that simple. But I will agree with you, uh, Cole, that that is a, that's a kind of a, a trouble, troublesome thing to act because to, to open up because yes, um, any fair reader of the scripture can find passages in the Old Testament, particularly where there is a, as it were, a command um, to uh, go and to wage war and to kill. And you would think that is, that means God allows uh, killings. Um, I'll tell you how I resolve that in my faith, but I will say this in difficult subjects about like this, it's not always to be understood. It's a lot of times to be surrendered to God. There's a lot of things I don't understand. And if I try to put God on trial as though I know everything that happened in that story, um, I only place myself in the role of a fool. I don't put God on trial. And so when I read passages like that, yes, in my modern mind, it seems like, yeah, our critics can use this and that, but I will say this, God knew those passages would be difficult to read. And he left those in the scripture, because if we can only serve God when we understand and approve, then we're not serving God, God is serving us. And so, no, God has all, uh, murder was commanded in the Old Testament. Uh, the prohibition of murder is all the way back in uh, the, the Torah, uh, thou shalt not kill. Um, and yet uh, the nation of Israel had wars that it fought. And so it does get confusing there. Um, and so that also deals, um, this deals uh, with Paul's statement um, on uh, God is justified. I am not going to be in a situation where I judge God. I'm always going to be in a situation where um, I confess to God if I'm struggling with something I have. I have. I, I used to try to hide my struggles with faith, and then I realized that God had allowed that. Um, and oftentimes, I've been able to help people who other people couldn't help because they were just giving them, bless God, and I was talking to them. Um, and so, I, I cannot go through uh, personal experiences of becoming and learning and growing and then hide them from you. So, yes, I have had passages in the scripture that I've read, and I'm like, that just that does not make that 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 just that does not seem to make any sense to me now um as a pastor it would be really easy for me not to open up for questions um and just pretend like people don't ask those kind of questions um but i want to say this is me um opening up uh, opening up my heart and being transparent uh, and taking all the resulting risks <laughs> of doing so so this is what I believe. Whenever there is passages in the scripture that read particularly harshly, there's a chance that the wars of the nation are getting mixed up in the ethics of the individual. That still happens. It happens in our world today. Um, and that's a possibility. I just don't know. Secondly, there's a possibility that there are elements in the story that I don't know. God had dealings with people that I don't know. There were necessities of justice that I don't know. Anybody who reads the Bible of a situation that happened 2,500 years ago 
or 1500 years ago, and you then decide you know everything there is to know about that, that's a very vain uh, thing to do, to decide you know everything. This is, and then the third thing is this, um, and this is how I've worked through these kind of things. The third thing is this, the Old Testament reflects humanity being reapproached by grace. So the Old Testament, there's sin, perfection is destroyed in the garden. There is a reapproach of grace. You see, we can't save ourselves. We can't fix it ourselves if we try. So what's happening? It's not us getting closer to God. No, there's no risk of that. It's God getting closer to us. I hope you all see that. God is coming our way, not us going God's way. Do you see in the Old Testament? And he is coming and first he's coming toward us. And the first thing he has to do is convince us that we are not our own solution. How does he do that? He gives us a law that is impossible to be kept. A law that is impossible. Yes, the law was impossible to keep. That's why Christ must come. And the point of the law was not to produce perfection. The point of the law was to produce failure. So we would quit looking to our own goodness. And so having quit looking to our own goodness and realizing our best works are impossibly wrong, sinful, we then are ready for a redeemer. This is the story of grace. So everybody in the Old Testament is sinfully far away from God. And there is this God coming close to us until the gospel until Calvary, until Christ spreads his arms and dies between heaven and earth. And there, the ground shakes, the sun hides its face. I'm about to get to preaching. I just, it's hard to preach. Everybody's on mute and can't say amen. (laughs) Um, At this moment, this awesome moment, now the veil is rent, do you see? Up till now, God's been coming our way, but now the veil's rent. We have the opportunity to go his way. Why? We couldn't go his way then. But now, because the separation in the veil, the the veil in the Holy of Holies has been rent, and we can go into his presence. So now it's in the New Testament that we are able to approach him. There's a lot of things that happen in the Old Testament, even among the patriarchs, that represent the very pinnacle of human sin. They are ugly, they are pitiful, they are horrific. There are even things that represent a divine abomination of a moral nature that the Lord allowed to happen. The Bible tells us why. Because he's working with flawed, broken people, and he can either end us or he can put up with us. And he chose love, and he put up with us. So there's all kinds of stuff in the Old Testament that represents not who God is, but where we are. But God won't give up on us in spite of our hideous morals and buying and selling women and slavery. And I mean, it's horrific. God won't give up on us. That's how much he loves us. So don't let the devil tell you you aren't loved. Go find some crazy person in the Old Testament who did did something awful and they're still in the story. And then tell the devil, he must love me a lot because he came a mighty long way for us. So now we're in the New Testament. The open door of spiritual opportunity. Now we can draw nigh to God. Do you see? And so um, Old Testament should, in my opinion, is an imperfect example of how God wanted people to live. Do you think God wanted David to do what he did with Bathsheba? Do you think God wanted the sons of the patriarchs to randomly rape one, some women, woman, and, this, and then when their family comes, set on them and kill them all? Do you think that was God's plan? 
No, it just shows you how love puts up with people, sin, error. And he had to get us to a point where he could undo what had happened in sin and transgression in the Garden of Eden. And just as through one man, Adam, sin, rebellion, self-service and worship entered into the world, through one man, Jesus Christ, grace, hope, mercy, peace has entered into the world. And so the result of that is um, three different things, ways in which I have um, dealt with Old Testament texts where there is seemingly a great immor- um, horrible uh, thing that is being done. You want to know what God is like? He has shown you. You don't have to argue about Old Testament texts. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know how much he loves you? Look at Jesus. You want to know what he will do to save you? Look at Jesus. We don't have to argue about what Abraham did and what happened to Tamar. We don't, no, no. All that is flesh. You want, to know, you want to see what God looks like? Look at Jesus. You want to see God's heart? Look at Jesus. Behold, I repeat myself. All right. So I think that's enough. How are we doing on time? Too long. Um, so anyway. All right. I'd like us to end with prayer and I'd like us to try something. I'd like all of you who will um, to unmute your microphones and I'd like us all. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.